0: During the course of a year, uh, each one of us receive many different invitations and how we respond to those invitations is usually determined by who's inviting us and also what we're being invited to. If we love the person that's inviting us, uh, if we love spending time with them, we're probably going to accept the invitation that they give to us, regardless if we like what they're inviting us to or not. Uh, you know, so you, you see this with couples all the time, the, the girl might invite the guy to kind of a girly play that he really has no interest in going to, but yet he has an interest in going with her, he loves her, he wants to spend time with her, and so he accepts the invitation, not because he likes what he's being invited to, but who. He is inviting him, and, and you see that in the other way around as well. The guy might, and, hey, let's go watch this, you know, movie where there's lots of violence and lots of death, and she has no interest in seeing that, but yet, you know, she goes with him because she loves him and wants to spend time with him. Now, another reason that we accept an invitation is we love what we've been invited to go to, even if we don't love the person that is inviting us. You know, when I was in high school, there was a girl in our scroll, uh, school that just loved the band Metallica. I mean, every t-shirt she wore every day had Metallica stuff on it. She had stickers all over her books that were Metallica. You know, I mean, she was just in love with that band. Uh, and there was a guy who was quite awkward in our class. He was actually a bit annoying. And he would ask her out over and over, and she just rejected him and rejected him and rejected him. And oftentimes, it was, you know, very public and embarrassing. And then he would, Went and got two tickets to front row seats to a Metallica concert uh, with VIP backstage passes. And then he asks her out, and this time she happily accepts. Not because she wants to be with him, but because of where he is going to take them. Uh, and so, you know, now. The one reason that we would really want to go is if both you love the person who is inviting you and you love the destination that you're being invited to. And you see this with, you know, married couples who are celebrating an anniversary. It could be a husband inviting a wife or vice versa. And it's like, you know what? Let's go to Hawaii. Let's go to some wonderful place that we both always wanted to do to, to celebrate our anniversary. And so they, they love the person they're going with. They love the place they're being invited to go to and they, Take up the invitation. Now, the reason I bring this up is because here at the end of John chapter 7, Jesus is going to give a great invitation to all those who are listening to him. But the way that they respond to this invitation is determined based on how they feel about Jesus and how they feel about what Jesus is offering to them. And so you're going to see different responses based off of those two realities of, of their view of Jesus, their feelings towards Jesus, and their view of what Jesus is inviting them to. Now what Jesus invites these people to is quite amazing, it's very significant, it's, it's quite profound, but how Jesus makes this invitation and when he makes this invitation really adds to that amazement, it, it adds to that significance, And and so I want to start with kind of looking at the setting in which this invitation is given, because understanding the setting gives you a greater understanding of the significance of what Jesus is saying. Now, I've noted as we've been going through John chapter 7 that the setting of all of this is the Feast of Tabernacles. At the beginning of the chapter, we saw what happened before the feast. Last week, we saw what happened in the middle of the feast. And now we're going to come to something that takes place at the end of the feast, this invitation that Jesus gives at the end of the feast. But in order to understand the significance of that, we need to understand some things about the Feast of Tabernacles. And more specifically, some of the things that they did in celebration of that feast and what those things symbolize. Because when you grasp that, all of a sudden what Jesus says becomes that much more profound. And so the, the Feast of Tabernacles, there are many feasts that the Jews celebrated, but by far this one was the most joyous. This is the one that usually, especially kids, uh, looked forward to the most. The feast lasted eight days, uh, and during these eight days, you know, you didn't live in your home. You know, the whole family kind of camped outdoors, and they made uh, these booths outside. Uh, As you can see here, the picture that's there, this is actually from last year, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles in Israel. So these probably have a little more modern look to them than perhaps they would have back in the day. But, you know, this is kind of just to give you a a visual of, you know, they're making these little booths where the whole family camps out, lives in this kind of makeshift tent for eight days. You think, well, what's the purpose of this? Well, this was a very important purpose because it was to remind them of the wilderness wandering that their ancestors went through when they lived in tents. And so imagine you got a little kid and you guys make this tent and you're starting to camp out and they're like, hey, why aren't we sleeping in our bed tonight? Why aren't we in our house? Why are we here in this little booth that we've made, and that was the perfect opportunity to say, well, let me tell you about our ancestors. Let me tell you about how they lived in the wilderness and how God took care of them when they were out there, and it was a time of remembrance of what God did in providing for their needs in the wilderness. Now, the greatest thing that God provided, or you could say the most important thing in a practical way, was water. They're out in the wilderness, it's hot, it's barren, and they needed water. And God miraculously provides water for them. And we see this in Exodus chapter 17 where the Israelites, they come to a place that has no water at all, and they're complaining to Moses, hey, we're going to die of thirst. And so Moses comes to God in prayer. And this is what God tells Moses in Exodus 17, verses 5 and 6. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. So God tells Moses, hey, I want you to strike this rock and water is going to come out. And so that's exactly what Moses does. He takes his staff, he strikes this rock, and just a huge amount of water comes in order for millions of people in order to be refreshed and, and their thirst quenched. And so during these eight days of the feast, they took time every day to remember God's provision of water. And they did it in a very uh, special way. They had this little ceremony to kind of remind them of this. And the way that they would do this is each day the, the priest would take an empty golden pitcher. And there would just be this large procession of people that would go with the priest and he would start at the temple and they would all walk down to the pool of Siloam. And this was, uh, the journey down was very solemn. It was very quiet. Why? Because there's no water in the pitcher. And so they're remembering the time that their ancestors had when there was no water. And they didn't have anything. And, and they were about to die of thirst. And so they come down with this kind of solemn, quiet, you know, reflective time. And then when they got to the pool of Siloam, the priest would fill the golden pitcher with water. And this large procession would then go from the pool back up to the temple. But as they go back up to the temple, the journey was very different than the journey going down because the journey going down was quiet, it was solemn, it was reflective. But the journey going back up, it was very joyous. Uh, lots of songs, lots of singing, lots of celebration because now, hey, this golden pitcher is filled with water and the remembering of God's provision of water. And so right after the priest would fill the golden pitcher there in the pool of Siloam, there would be three trumpet blasts. And the, the whole crowd would quote Isaiah 12:3, which says, "With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation." So this crowd is chanting this, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And then they start walking back to the temple and they would sing the Hallel, which is Psalms 113 through 118. And these are wonderful psalms. They speak of the majesty of God, the power of God to deliver them from you know the Egyptians, the trustworthiness of God, the kindness, the mercy of God that endures forever. And they would sing these songs all the way till They got back to the temple, and then uh, while they were singing, the priest would play different musical instruments. So just a very joyous journey back up to the temple. And then when the priest got to the temple, he would walk up next to the brazen altar was this silver basin, uh, and he would pour that water that he got from the Pool of Siloam into this silver basin, and they would just rejoice and be thankful as they remembered how God provided water for their ancestors in the wilderness. And they did this whole big procession with all these songs every day for the first seven days of the feast. And so every day there's this remembrance. Every day there's this rejoicing. Every day they're quoting this uh, passage in Isaiah 14.3. Every day they're singing these psalms. And then all of a sudden they come to the final day of the feast, the eighth day. And it was very different in the way in which they now remembered what God did for them. Now, the procession, it started uh, in a very similar way. They, they, they go down from uh, the temple. The priest has his golden pitcher. This procession's following. It's somber. It's quiet. But when they get to the pool of Siloam, the priest doesn't draw any water. And they go back to the temple in the same way that they came, this solemn, this quiet, this reflective way. And when he gets back to the temple... He starts to walk around the brazen altar and he walks around it seven times. And the purpose of walking around it seven times, maybe you can think of uh, something in scriptures where they walked around something seven times. They walked around the walls of the city of Jericho. But as a very first city, in the promised land that God gave to them. And so walking around the brazen altar seven times was a remembrance that the the wilderness wandering was complete. Just like when they walked around Jericho, that was the completion of the wilderness wandering, and they finally entered the promised land and were given the first city there in the promised land for their possession. And so it was kind of like, hey, now we're remembering the completion of the wilderness wandering, but yet the priest would then stand over the pool, the the basin there, and he would have no water water to pour into it. And the interesting thing was, the first seven days was a time to look back and reflect upon what God did in the past. But the eighth day was a day where they looked forward. They looked forward to something that God was going to do in the future. And that's why they don't get any water, they don't bring any water, because they're looking for God to provide something. And as the priest stood there with his empty uh, pitcher, he would quote, from Isaiah 44, 3, which says, For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirits on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. So here we see the priest, he's quoting a promise of God that God says, I'm going to give water not only to the thirsty Israelites, but to the thirsty promised land, but I'm going to give something else as well. I'm going to give my spirit and my blessings. And so as they have this eighth day, they're looking forward to, hey, God, we look back for seven days at what you did to provide water. Now on this eighth day, we look forward to this promise that you will continue to provide water for us personally as we thirst, for our land as it thirsts. But even more importantly, we look for you to provide your spirit that you promised to give to us. And as they did this, as the priest stands over this basin, he would hold the basin, uh, the pitcher upside down. No water would come out. And it was at that moment that everyone was to make a time of silent prayer before the Lord, asking for his provision of water and asking for his provision of the Spirit that he promised. So I want you to picture that. That's the setting That's something that they did throughout this Feast of Tabernacles, and that's very important to have as an understanding as we now come to what Jesus shares, the invitation that he gives, because you're going to see that it's even more significant and profound with the knowledge of what they did. So this is what Jesus says in John 7, 37-39. On the last day, the great day of the Feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now before we look at what Jesus says, I want you to notice when John tells us he says it. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out. So we've seen all these different things in John chapter 7, what happened before the feast, what happened in the middle of the feast, and now John tells us on the final day, that this eighth day of the feast, we're told that Jesus stands and he cries out something. Now we just read that and you might just you know skim right through it, but that's something that we want to stop and take note of because that's unique. Because Jesus as a teacher, as a rabbi, in that culture, rabbis would sit and the listeners would stand. It's kind of the opposite of what we're doing here. I'm standing, you're seated. uh, But in that time, the, the rabbi, the teacher, he would sit and those that wanted to listen would gather close and they would stand. And so that's typically when you see like the Sermon on the Mount and all these different things. Jesus would have been sitting and the other people would have been standing, listening, and he would have just been speaking in a normal voice. That would have been his normal pattern in which he communicated his teachings to people. But now we see two different unique things. We're told that he's actually standing, not sitting, and he's crying out. He's shouting instead of just speaking in a normal voice. Now, I want you to note something here that's important to recognize. This is the last feast of the year. But even more important than that, it's the last feast that all these festival people are going to come to before the next feast. And the next feast is the Feast of Passover. And at the Feast of Passover, in this next Feast of Passover, is the one where Jesus is going to be crucified. So Jesus is not going to speak to anybody during the Feast of Passover. He's going to be on a cross. He's not going to get the opportunity to proclaim a message to anyone. He's going to be on a cross. So what I want you to understand is this is the last opportunity that Jesus has to speak to this huge crowd. Because typically in Jerusalem, there would be like 100,000 people. But on festival days, there would be like a million people. All these people were required to come to three main feasts, and this is one of them. So Jesus has this huge crowd, and it's his last opportunity that he's ever going to get to speak and proclaim something to this huge crowd. And so he gives them this great invitation. He wants everyone in this crowd, the last time he's going to get to share with many of them, this wonderful invitation that he stands and shouts this message. Why? He wants them to see him. He wants them to hear him. He wants them to know what he is inviting them to do. Now, what Jesus says and how he says it by standing and shouting, I believe reveals when he said it. You see, Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, the perfect time to proclaim this, as you think of this procession, Remember on the eighth day, they go down to the Pool of Siloam. They come back. The priest walks around you know, the brazen altar seven times, and he pretends to pour water that's not there. And at that moment, everyone goes silent. Everyone starts to pray for what? Two things, that God would provide water that he promised, and that God would provide the spirit that he promised. And I believe it's at that moment when there's this silence that Jesus stands up and shout so that everybody can hear and notice what he says. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And I want you to picture this. You're know, you someone there, and you you know, for seven days have been remembering how God has provided water for your ancestors in the past. And on this day, you're thinking forward to God's provision of water for you personally, that he would provide for you because he promised it. And as you're just in that time of prayer asking for God's provision of water in this silent time that you're expecting to stay silent, all of a sudden someone starts shouting, which would have been quite disruptive of like, this isn't normal, this is what happens. And you listen to what they're saying to you, and they're saying, if anyone thirsts and you're praying for God to provide water, let him come to me and drink. And imagine you know, what you would be thinking and and how powerful that would be that this message isn't just happening to a group of people that are coming to some mountain. This message is taking place at the uh, temple when people are reflectively praying about the thing that Jesus is saying he can provide. They're asking God to give what Jesus says, hey, I'll give it to you. Anyone who's thirsty, come to me and drink. But you know what? That's not all you hear. He also says, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, here's something very important. John tells us what Jesus is speaking about here, what he's referring to when he says this. John says, but this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, this is something else very important because notice you're praying for two things. You're praying for God to bring water and you're praying for God to provide his spirit. And so Jesus stands up and proclaims, hey, anyone who thirsts, come to me, take a drink. I'll provide the water, but you know what else? I'll also provide the spirit the two things that you're asking for, the two things that you're reflectively praying, I'm going to interrupt this prayer and I'm going to shout out, I am the source of this. I'm the one who can provide this. I'm the one who will give you this. See, the setting of this feast helps you understand even more of this invitation and its significance and how profound it would have been to the listeners of the invitation because of what was just happening, the direct connection to what they were celebrating and asking God for. So let's take a moment and kind of break down this great invitation that Jesus gives. He starts by saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now there's three important stages here connected to what Jesus starts with. This, this invitation that he throws out, he says you know, there's three kind of stages that, that build upon one another. And the start of this, the first stage is, if anyone thirsts. You see, this is where you're gonna. You have to begin. You have to have a a thirst because you're not going to seek to quench something that you don't see that you have. You know, you're you're wanting a drink only if you recognize I'm thirsty. But if you don't realize you're thirsty, you don't have some thirst, and then, then you're not going to seek to get a drink to quench that thirst. And so Jesus is saying, for those of you who have an understanding, a recognition that you're thirsty. It starts with you. you got to realize that. you got to come to that understanding. But ultimately, what Jesus is speaking about here is, is far beyond physical thirst for water. So I can provide for your spiritual thirst. You see, one of the main reasons people don't come to Jesus is because they don't know that they need him. They don't recognize that they're spiritually thirsty. It's like, hey, I'm not thirsty. I'm fine. I have no needs. I don't need Jesus. I, can, I got whatever I want and need in my life. But until you acknowledge that you have a spiritual need, you're not going to come to the Lord to meet it. So you got to come to that place where you recognize I'm thirsty and I need someone to help fill that thirst, quench that thirst. But notice what Jesus says, he says if anyone thirst, I love that, especially who's in the crowd. I mean this is Jerusalem. We know there's a bunch of people there who want him dead. The religious leaders despise him. But Jesus says, you know what? Anyone, even you guys who want to kill me, anyone, I don't care who it is, if you are thirsty, you can come to me. This is this universal, I'll let anyone come to me. Anyone, Jew, Gentile, male, female, rich, poor, educated, non-educated, I don't care, anyone can come. All you got to do is recognize your spiritual thirst. So that's the first stage. But then you have to do something. Okay, I see that I'm thirsty. Well, well now what? Jesus says, well, the second stage builds upon the first one. Once you recognize that you're thirsty spiritually, this is what you got to do. Let him come to me. So first, recognize you have a spiritual thirst that needs to be quenched. And the second thing you need to do is see who you have to come to in order to receive what you need. You got to come to Jesus, anyone who thirsts, come to me. You know, and this is another thing that kind of keeps people from receiving what they need spiritually because they're seeking, many people, all sorts of ways to fulfill that thirst in their life, but Jesus isn't one of them. And you see this, you know, people are pursuing things. And they realize there's there's an emptiness in them. They realize there's a, a thirst within them, and they're trying to fill that thirst in different ways, but yet they find themselves constantly thirsty, that this isn't working, that, that I tried this and this, and, and it just, I'm left still thirsty spiritually. You know, a survey was done a few years ago among 1,000 millionaires living in America. They were asked the question, are you satisfied where you're at financially? Now, I'm sure all of us in this room, if we were millionaires, we'd say, yeah, I'm satisfied where I'm at financially. I'd be super happy with uh, at least a million dollars. But, you know, 90% of these millionaires said, no, they are not satisfied financially. So they were asked the second question, how much money would it take to give you financial satisfaction? And the most common answer was just a little bit more. And I think that's so interesting. It just kind of portrays where we're at. You know, we just think, if I just had a little more money, or I had a little more of this, then I'd be satisfied. But the reality is, I get that little more, and I need more. Oh, I have a million, but I need two. I got two, I need three. You know, I have this relationship, but I need that one. I got this, and I that. And it's like, there's always this mindset of more, more, and we're left with, I'm never truly satisfied. I'm always left thirsty. It's because people aren't coming to the true source of what fulfills thirst, Jesus Christ. So the first stage is the thirsty stage. you got to recognize your spiritual thirst. The second stage is the come to Jesus stage. you got to recognize He is the one you must come to to quench that thirst. But then it leads us to the next stage, which is, you know, it follows in this logical process, and that's the drink stage. Jesus says, you must come to me and drink. You see, if Jesus were were to offer you a glass of water, you could look at that water and you could think, man, I'm thirsty, that would really taste great. Oh, that water looks so clean and I bet you it tastes so wonderful. But if all you did is look at it and admire it and desire it, but you didn't take it and drink it, guess what? It would do nothing to quench your thirst. And so you got to make a stand and say, you know what? I am now going to drink of what Jesus offers. I'm going to take what Jesus offers and receive it. And this is what Jesus says, you know, you got to come to me if you thirst, and I will fulfill it, but you have to be the one to receive what I give. I'm not going to, you know, rip your head back and and pour water down your throat and force it on you. No, you're going to have to drink. You're going to have to choose to take what I offer you. You're going to have to trust in me, believe in me. Now, we've seen Jesus say, something similar to this already a couple times, so I won't harp on this much more because he's already talked to the woman of the well, he talked to the crowd, using kind of water, using this similar invitation of what he can provide to meet spiritual needs. But you know what? Jesus continues to say something that he hasn't said at all yet in his ministry. He says, He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water." Now, as I already mentioned, John makes very clear what Jesus is referring to here is the giving of the Holy Spirit. But he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, I want to understand something here. Jesus had to die on the cross, he had to rise from the dead, and he had to go back and be glorified with the Father in heaven before he could send the Spirit. We're gonna see in John chapter 14, John chapter 15, Jesus is gonna tell his disciples, hey, it's better for you than I go, because until I go, I can't send the Spirit to come and dwell you, empower you. I, I gotta, you know, be ascended back to the Father, and then I can do that for you. And so, you know, Jesus had to pay the price for our sin because the reality is the Spirit of God can't dwell in us until our sin has been dealt with. And so John's saying, hey, this is a promise that's still future for them. Because it can't happen until after Jesus dies, until after Jesus rises from the dead. Then, when sin has been dealt with and conquered, the Spirit of God can dwell in people's lives. You know, the last thing that Jesus tells his disciples before he does ascend back into heaven is about the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, verses 4, 5, and 8 says this, And being assembled together with them, Jesus commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So notice here, in John 7, Jesus is promising the Holy Spirit to those who believe in him, and then in Acts chapter 1, right, the last thing that Jesus tells his disciples is, hey, you guys need to wait. He just told them, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Woo, that's a big thing. Yes, it is, but wait. Go to Jerusalem and wait. What are we waiting for? You're going to wait for the promise. Remember what I already told you about, the promise that I'm going to send the Holy Spirit? Wait for the Holy Spirit. Because once He comes, He will empower you to be able to go out into all the world and preach the gospel. Now the thing I want to draw your attention to is the illustration that Jesus gives that's connected to receiving the Holy Spirit. And I think this is very profound and very important because oftentimes when people think about receiving the Spirit of God and the work of the Spirit of God, it's very much a personal thing in the sense of what it does for me and how it can benefit me and how it can empower me and how it can help me. And it's very kind of self-focused. But I want you to notice what Jesus says because it kind of gives a very different heart to the work of the Spirit in a life of a believer. He says, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, you know what? I think this is interesting because Jesus is speaking about giving the Holy Spirit to those who believe, and you would think he would say, into the heart will flow rivers of living water. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, and into your heart as he comes, it's going to flow these rivers of living water. That's not what he says. He says, out of your heart, out of you, is going to flow these rivers of living water water. This illustration that Jesus gives shares with us something important about how God wants the Spirit of God to work in our lives. You see, God didn't just give us the Holy Spirit to benefit us and bless us. It is a benefit for sure. It is a blessing for sure. It wasn't just to dwell in us. It wasn't just to to do things for us. The Spirit of God does that, but there's more to His purpose in our life than that. You see, God also gives the Spirit to flow through us to impact and influence others. The Holy Spirit should flow out of our heart like living water, rivers of living water to influence and impact the world around us. You know, as Christians, we shouldn't be like a reservoir that just holds all the Holy Spirit. It's just all for us. We're the reservoir. We just keep it all to ourselves. God wants us to be like a conduit that allows the Holy Spirit to flow through us to others. Now when you think of the book of Acts... And you look at the disciples and the Gospels and then you see the change when they're finally empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is exactly what you see. It's not a bunch of guys just sitting around saying, well, look at what all the Holy Spirit is doing for me personally. We're this you know reservoir and we have all this stuff that the Holy Spirit is giving us and aren't we so blessed and we're just going to sit back and enjoy all that He gives. No, right away we see that they're more of a conduit, that the Spirit of God does stuff in their life that flows through them to influence and impact others. Right away, as the Spirit of God comes upon them, what does Peter do? The man who just denied Jesus three times is now filled with supernatural boldness, power from the Spirit of God, to stand before a huge crowd and proclaim the first gospel message and 3,000 people come to know Jesus Christ. And then after that, all the disciples are filled with that boldness and they're going out and they're proclaiming the gospel and the power of God is moving through them and people are getting healed and lives are being transformed. But you know what? The fruit of the Spirit also starts flowing through these guys. Love and joy, peace, peace, kindness, gentleness, self-control, the fruits of the Spirit of God that's in them is starting to flow out of their life and impacting others. And we see this love and people are coming and saying, hey, you know what, you're here and you don't have any money. Well, I'm going to sell my stuff and I'm going to give you and I'm going to help you and I'm going to be there for you. And there's this unity and this love that was just supernatural that was transpiring because of this outflowing of the fruit of the Spirit among the early believers. And then all of a sudden the gifts of the Spirit started to flow through them. God gave these gifts for the edification of the church, and people are starting to use those gifts, and people are being built up and edified, and the church is just being blessed as the Spirit of God is flowing through people. Not just in them, for them, for their own benefit, but going through them to impact others that they have an influence over. So one of the best blessings that we receive when we put our belief in Jesus is, hey, yeah, you're going to be forgiven of your sin. You're going to be my child, but you know what? My spirit is going to indwell you. Oh, that's great. Yeah, but you know what? As he does that, my heart's desire is that he would flow out of you, flow through you to others, that his power, that the fruit of the spirit, that the gifts of the spirit would flow through your life. Now, unfortunately, and if you've been a Christian for any time, you know, you would recognize, hey, I look around at a lot of Christians and I wouldn't describe them as someone who has the Holy Spirit flowing through them. I don't see much evidence of that. And perhaps maybe you even look at your own life and say, there's not a huge amount of evidence in my own life of the Holy Spirit flowing through me. I don't see this power going through me or or the fruit of the Spirit kind of flowing through me like it should or or gifts that God has given me that I'm using for the benefit and edification of others. And you know, the reality is, oftentimes the reason that doesn't happen is because of our own selfishness. I mean, as a pastor, I've seen too often where people come to church, and especially I think this happens even more so in America where I think we're kind of more self-absorbed, it's like, you know, what does this church have to offer me? You know, how good's the teaching? How good's the worship? You know, what's this going to offer my kids? You know, what kind of things you got going on in the week? You know, what is it going to do for me? What am I going to get out of this? And there's nothing wrong with wanting to have a church that meets your needs, but the question is, do you also come by saying, well, what can I bring? What can I offer? How can I serve? How can the Spirit of God use me in this place? And I think oftentimes the people are just saying, what can I get? of St. to what can I give? And having both mindsets, that I'm coming to give, that I recognize the Spirit of God dwells in me, that I have a gift given by God, that the fruit of the Spirit should be evident in my life, and that as I come to church, people are blessed because He flows through me. He impacts others through me. I serve others and see the Lord work in that way. You know, when people just want the Spirit of God to flow in them, and they're not really concerned about the Spirit of God flowing out of them, they become just like the Dead Sea. You know, the Dead Sea in Israel is this place where pretty much nothing can live because the salt content is so high, but the interesting thing is you've got these rivers flowing into it, but nothing flows out of it, and that's his problem. And I think that's too often the way we are sometimes. It's like God is flowing in and pouring into us, and we're like, I just want to keep it all for myself. I don't want anything to flow out. And then there's a deadness. There's a lack of impact that we have because of that. I want you to ask yourself something. When it comes to the power, the fruit, and the gifts of the Spirit, what kind of flow is coming out of you? Maybe if you were to look at it from a a picture of a, a water hose, And, you know, the water is the the spirit of God and you are the hose. How would you describe what's coming out? Would you say it's kind of a drip? You know, every now and then there's a little drip of power. There's a little drip of the fruit of the spirit. There's a little drip of a gift being used here and there. Or maybe you're more like, you know what, it's kind of an off and on thing. You know, there, there's there's times in my life where, man, you're really going to see me use my gift, and, and I'm going to be really full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, and the power of the Spirit is going to kind of flow. But then it kind of gets turned off for a bit, and then it comes back on. It's kind of this on and off thing. Or maybe, you know, you say, no, i, I got a steady stream. There's this regular flowing of the Spirit out of my life through power, through fruit, through giftings. Or perhaps you can come to the place where I believe God wants all of us. Where is this continual full blast spray of power, of gifting, of spiritual things that are from the fruit of the Spirit flowing out of your life. And you know, if that last one doesn't describe how the Holy Spirit flows out of your life, I encourage you, don't just be content with, well, you know, I'm a stream or I'm a drip or I'm on and off. No, I want to get to that place where the Spirit truly flows the way God wants them to every single day, and ask the Lord to help you to change in that. And perhaps there's some selfishness in your life, perhaps that you're not really abiding in Christ at the way that you should, perhaps you're not relying on the Spirit like you need to, but ask the Lord to help you see where you need to change and to make those changes so that His Spirit can flow through you to influence and impact those that are in your life. You know, I think God wants to do so much more through each one of us, through the Spirit's power, through the Spirit's gifts, through this fruit of the Spirit than we can even imagine. And it's one of the most rewarding things in our life. You know, I actually believe that one of the highest places of satisfaction is when we become that conduit for the Holy Spirit. Then we look at, man, I want to influence my family and my people I work with and the people my neighbors. You know, when I'm that conduit, that is actually the place of my life that brings the most satisfaction when I'm that reservoir, that's where it kind of stops it. When it's all about me and what I get, there's really not the same kind of satisfaction in life that, oh yeah, I've been blessed, but I'm not a blessing. You you even think of like when I'm dead, what are people going to say about me? Oh man, that guy had everything but didn't do anything with it. You know I mean? To think, hey, how am I influencing and impacting others through the power of the Spirit of God? Well, Jesus, we see this amazing scene, the silent prayer, people praying for God to give water, for God to provide his spirit, and he shouts as he stands. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What an amazing invitation. Well, let's see how people respond. Verse 40. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, truly, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem, where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Jesus presents this amazing invitation to this huge crowd who's in this silent, reflective prayer. And the first two responses that we see of Jesus are correct responses. The first one is, man, truly this is the prophet. And as I mentioned back uh, long ago in the beginning of John, they're speaking specifically of the prophesied prophet that Deuteronomy speaks of when Moses says, they're going to come one greater than me. Him you shall hear, a prophet greater than me, and that is truly Jesus. He is that prophet that Moses was speaking of, and that's what they're referring to. This is who that is. The one that Moses said would come, that that's who he is. And they were right. And then the second group says, this is the Christ, which is you know the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. That—that This is the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. And once again, they were correct. That is who Jesus was. But then there were those who said, well, wait a second. Jesus can't be the Christ. He can't be the Messiah, and notice the reason why. Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? You see, these people knew the Bible. They knew the scriptures, they knew the prophecy, and they knew, wait a second, the Bible prophesies that the Messiah is gonna come from Bethlehem, not the region of Galilee. Bethlehem's from the region of Judea, and it's a very specific city. And they're thinking, well, Jesus can't be the Messiah because he's from Galilee. But what is it that they don't know about Jesus? We should know, we celebrate this all the time at Christmas. Where was he born? He was born in Bethlehem. He did fulfill the prophecy of Micah that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. They were just ignorant of it. They just assumed he grew up in Galilee, grew up in Nazareth, so surely he must be born there, you know, but he wasn't. He was born in Bethlehem And he actually met the qualifications that they used to say he can't be the Messiah. But because of this, now there is this division. Many are like, I want to accept this invitation. I believe that Jesus is who he claims to be and what he offers I desperately want. And so I take it. And others say, well, he can't offer that because he's not the Messiah. He wasn't born in Bethlehem. Well, they missed it. He was. And now there's this division. But now we're going to see the group that really doesn't like Jesus. And this is kind of a humorous part of the, the end here, because back in verse uh, 32, the religious leaders sent these officers to arrest Jesus. You know, when people started to think, well, man, Jesus is speaking. They're not doing anything. Maybe the religious leaders believe that he truly is the Christ. Right when that happened, they said, uh, we're ending this. Officers, go arrest Jesus. And so the officers have come to arrest Jesus. And now I want you to note What happens with this situation? Verse 44. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees and said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. So the religious leaders, they send officers to arrest Jesus. And I want you to kind of picture this. You're one of these officers. You come into this crowded temple area, and you're arresting Jesus' Why? for the words that he is speaking. And now you get there, and he starts to say something before you can arrest him. And you listen to this great invitation that he gives. And all of a sudden, you know that you're commanded to go and arrest him, and you've never heard anything like this before. You've never heard an invitation like this before. Here is Jesus declaring to be the source of what you're praying about. The one who's saying, hey, I am the one who can give you the water. I am the one who can give you the spirit. You've never heard anyone speak with that authority. You've never heard anyone say anything like that. And instead of arresting him, you walk away and you go back to the religious leaders. You come back empty-handed. I mean, your job is to, you're an officer. You were sent to arrest. They get to the religious leaders. They show up, and notice how this conversation goes. They say, why haven't you brought him? Why did you guys come back empty-handed? Where's Jesus? We sent you to arrest him. Why didn't you bring him? What happened? Maybe they're thinking, you know, did the disciples fight you off? But notice what they say. No man ever spoke like this man. And here's, I think, a great thing, another opportunity for these hard-hearted religious leaders to just stop and think, why don't we come and listen to this guy? Why don't we actually just really listen to his message? And because here we got these officers who are saying, we listened. No one's ever spoke like this guy before. We just didn't feel right arresting him. And notice their response. They're definitely not happy about what has transpired. And they say, are you also deceived Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. So notice this attack against the officers. First is, are you also deceived like the many people in this crowd, believing that Jesus is the Messiah? You guys are are a bunch of deceived people, unlike us Pharisees. Have, Have any of us believed in him? I mean, surely we're the religious leaders. We're the, the great people. I mean, if we haven't done it, then then why would you do it? Well, you're so deceived like this crowd. And notice what they go on to say about the crowd. This crowd that does not know the law is accursed. This crowd's not like us. Well, we know the law. They're the ones who are accursed. And I think this, it's interesting here that the, the accusation that they bring against the crowd and they bring against the officers are actually two things that they are truly guilty of. They're the ones actually deceived. And they're the ones who are going to be accursed because of it. They think, oh, the crowd that believes in Jesus, they are accursed. No, the crowd that believes in Jesus are going to be the ones who are going to be saved from their sins. They're the ones who are not going to be accursed in hell for eternity. You guys are. You guys who have rejected him, you're the ones who got the issue. You're the ones who were truly deceived because you don't believe the truth of Jesus, and you're the ones who are going to receive the consequences. So it's interesting how self-deceived they are. They think, no, no, you guys are the deceived ones, and you guys are the accursed ones, when really they were the deceived ones, and they were the cursed ones. But there's one actually in their group, because they say, have any of the religious leaders believed in him? Well, actually, one has, at least. Remember Nicodemus? Back in chapter 3... Comes to Jesus by night, Jesus shares the gospel with him, tells him how to be born again. Will that influence and impact Nicodemus? So Nicodemus is going to stand up here and say something to the religious leaders. He's part of that group, he's one of them as well. Notice what he says. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, who are you also from Galilee search and look for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee and everyone went to his own house So here is Nicodemus Nicodemus was definitely influenced and impacted by that wonderful conversation we we use that conversation it's the most quoted verse John 3:16 well that was spoken specifically to Nicodemus Jesus told Nicodemus how to be saved Nicodemus was influenced by that. And now he stands up just a little bit. I wish Nicodemus would be, hey, guys, you said none of us believe in him. I believe in him. I had this conversation with him. I actually listened to what he said. I judged him based on that. And I have chosen to believe that he's the Messiah. That would have been good if he did that. But right now, he's not willing to go that far. He's just like, hey, you know what, guys? Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? And the answer should have been, no, it doesn't. According to the law, you're supposed to listen and actually hear and know what they're doing before you would bring judgment. And these officers just went and they just said, man, we have never heard someone like this. We listened and it changed our view. And so Nicodemus is saying, why don't the rest of us do that? Why don't the rest of us go before we judge Jesus, actually take time to listen to him? Because Nicodemus did this already. He went and got to listen to Jesus and it changed his view and he wants the rest of the religious leaders also to follow suit. You know what, if you'll just listen to this man, if you'll just take time to open your ears and open your heart, you'll realize who he is. But you know what? These hard-hearted religious leaders, notice their response. Are you also from Galilee? Search and look for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Notice they don't answer Nicodemus' question. Because the question is an obvious answer that they knew the answer to. No, we're not supposed to judge someone before listening to them and hearing them out. But they don't answer that at all. They kind of do what we see so often even in politics today and other things. You know what? I'm not going to answer your good question because I don't have an answer for it. I'm just going to attack you. I'm going to attack you and make you look bad. And that is what this statement, are you also from Galilee, is all about. You think, are you also from Galilee? Oh, no, don't say that to me. But... For them, this was a huge thing because they thought the Galileans, they're a bunch of uneducated hicks that live up in the north. They don't know the law like we do. They're not really spiritual like we are. So to be referred to as a Galilean when you were uh, from Jerusalem and you were part of the religious leaders, that was like a real big dig of like, oh, is that what you are? You're one of those uneducated guys, Nicodemus. Is that why you're kind of standing up for us? And then they go on to make a statement, kind of like they did earlier, that is untrue. They say, search and look for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. They had such a despised view of Galileans. They're like, well, and God's never used anybody from Galilee. No prophet's risen up from Galilee, guys. And it was completely false. Hey, Jonah, guess what? From Galilee, Nahum from Galilee. And you know who was was from Galilee, one of the greatest prophets of all? Elijah from Galilee, who they would say, oh, Elijah was so great and wonderful. Yeah, he was from Galilee too. And so they're saying, hey, No prophet has arisen from Galilee, and three of the most famous ones came from Galilee. So it's just a complete lie, and it just shows kind of their own hard-heartedness and deception that they have. And then we're told the feast is over, and everyone goes to his own house. So now they're no longer staying in the booths. They're going back to their home. And I'm sure that many of the people now are pondering this amazing invitation Man, that was really, that's, that's the craziest Feast of Tabernacles ever. And we're in that moment of prayer. That guy stands up named Jesus and he gives this invitation. And wow, that was, I got to think about that. And I hope that that's where we're at as well. If you've never put your trust in Jesus, his great invitation is available to you. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If you recognize that you have a spiritual thirst, recognize Jesus is the only one who can meet it, who can only satisfy it. But you know what? For those of us who have already placed our faith in Jesus, we also have a great invitation from Jesus. He invites us to allow the Spirit of God to flow through our lives to impact others. And my challenge to you and myself is let the power, the fruit, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit flow through you to others. Be a conduit for the Spirit, not a reservoir. And when you do that, Man, that's going to be one of the most wonderful, satisfying things that you can do, allowing God to move through your life. And I just challenge you this week, just have a heart. Say, Lord, I really want to be with that mindset of how can you flow through me better? How can your power flow through me? How can your gifts, what gifts do I have? How can I use them? Lord, help me to walk in the fruit of the Spirit. Help me to influence family. Help me to influence friends. Help me to influence coworkers. Lord, just allow your Spirit to flow through me in a way that would bless those around me. Let's pray.